You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Sean, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about. My name is Sean Duffy. I'm owner of Integrity Pharmacy Consultants. We work with independent owners and introduce them to other owners that are either interested in buying or selling a pharmacy. I thought we could talk about some of the changes that we're seeing in the industry from a buying and selling perspective. We talk to a ton of pharmacy owners every week. Sean, I think that whenever you talk about change, COVID always comes into the equation. Let's throw that in there. Do you think there's been any change in the industry as far as buyers and sellers because of the shutdown and things like that? I do not. I don't think there's been an increase of either. I do think that COVID, initially, a lot of owners were really scared. Their prescription volume was dropping. People were coming in. But in hindsight, it turned out to be a blessing for a majority of the independent owners because with COVID brought immunization, brought testing capabilities and opportunities that had a very high gross margin, some of it 100% because they were given the vaccines for free. I just think it helped carry owners through a tough time and the PPP loans, everything that comes with it. It was actually a shot in the arm for independent pharmacy, which was desperately needed. But now we're coming off that honeymoon phase where we don't have all of that high gross margin and some of the other opportunities we had before. But I guess I don't see an increase of buyers or sellers or people getting into pharmacy because of COVID. I see COVID being able to sustain some owners that may not have been able to stay open up until this point. It gave them a little bit longer to go. Besides the financial part of it, do you think just a change in life brought any changes to the market as far as maybe people didn't have as much time to think about a sale, or maybe they had more time to think about a sale, that kind of stuff. Do you think that's changed anything in the market or is the answer to that no again? No, I guess me personally, I haven't seen that. What I have seen though, it changed a lot of people's perspective on actually wanting to be a retail pharmacist. Going into COVID, we were at a point where the supply of pharmacists was exceeding the demand for pharmacists and pay rate in some of the the retail chains out there was actually going down quite a bit from what it was. But then COVID comes along and it was a very high stress environment. Pharmacists having to go into work, talking to these sick people that had COVID and it was just very stressful. And we saw and still see a lot of pharmacists that have left retail pharmacy. Where they've gone, I'm not really sure, but we've got a shortage of pharmacists and there's some huge sign-on bonuses out there in some places just to get people to keep the pharmacies open. I lose track of sign-on bonuses because I'm not in the market for that, but that is kind of an indicator of where things are going. Yeah, I've seen a a sign-on bonus for $100,000 for a two-year commitment, which is crazy. What have you seen in general, Sean? How's business in the buy-sell world? Pharmacies are still changing hands. They're still 
new people opening pharmacies. We haven't seen a net difference, a large net difference of the decrease of pharmacies. So if some are selling or closing or selling their files to a chain, we have others that are opening up pharmacies to to fill that void. I have seen a slowdown here of late, and I'm not sure if it's because of the higher interest rates that have really become pretty significant compared to where they used to be. I don't know if that's part of it. I don't know if it's because of the people being unsure on what this double DIR hit's going to do at the beginning of 2024, trying to weather that out and see how they come out at the end and maybe just play it a day at a time. I don't know. I have seen the transactions decrease a little bit over the last six months. I think in general, to be a smart buyer, they say don't buy it really on potential. You never know what's going to happen with something. I know what we're doing for 2024, there's going to be some changes in Michigan and so on. And I'm kind of like, eh, kind of like a poker hand. I'll stick around for the flop kind of thing. I think for us, we're not in the market to sell right now. But I think if I was, I might hold off a little bit just to kind of see what's out there. And then 2024 comes around and not much has changed or gotten worse. Maybe that's where you'll see some more change. I I do see that. I see a lot of people indecisive. They want to see what's going to happen. There's also a lot of legislation out there that's either recently passed or in the process of being hopefully passed but it just takes time to see any results from these new laws going into effect that actually will help independent pharmacies and take away some of the control from the PBMs that are crushing profits right now. Yeah, my listeners hear it over and over, but there's someone on our team that is excited about 2024 coming because Michigan's going through a bunch of changes. And my message to this employee is don't hold your breath because The PBM seem to be one step ahead of things, but I think one benefit of it is that if you've got a legislator you're trying to meet for breakfast or whatever or send them a note, it's easier telling them about the predicament with the PBMs and so on when there's three or four steps instead of when there's eight steps and a bunch of smoke and mirrors between them. So I think it might be a good step to clear some of this up, but We'll have to wait and see what actually happens on January 1st. Yeah. Some of the states like California went fee for service in their Medicaid. And I think that kept a lot of independents from wanting to sell or going out of business. So they're getting $13 a script on Medi-Cal. And that really saved a lot of pharmacies, especially in some of these rural low-income areas where they had a high percentage. So as things change, I think it's possible. And I think there's some owners just holding on, hoping that they turn the corner and get there. The one thing I would caution somebody, though, is be aware of the one more year syndrome. And what that is, if you're getting close to retirement, you think, I'm going to really change my business. I'm going to buy drugs better to have better profits. I'm going to advertise more. I'm going to bring in more scripts. When you get older in life towards the end of your professional career, the energy's just not there and it just never happens. So that one more year syndrome turns into another year and slowly your business is degrading. So be careful for that in fairly decent energetic health and still able to go after it, then I guess we'll see what happens. Sean, I know there's a big 
expanse of the average age of buying and the average age of selling. But if you could figure out that average, what would be the average age of buying versus the average age of selling? So I would say the average age of buying is probably, I would call it 40 because we have people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and we still have owners in their 60s looking to buy and a couple in their 70s that just don't ever want to leave pharmacy. But I would say the overall average for buying is 40, and I would say the average age for selling is probably, it's probably lower than you think. I would say 55 to 60 is the average age because you've got some younger owners that are just either either tired or they want to take advantage of getting a decent profit for their pharmacy now and not waiting to have the business go down. You've got some owners, they have a great opportunity, they decide to get out. If you could put a feeling of pharmacist on a graph, what emotion would show the biggest change over the last, let's say, five years? It might be depression or anxiety or anger or whatever. Uh, the, the one thing that comes to mind is frustration. When we go in and talk to owners, and that's how we meet owners, we typically will stop by the pharmacy and introduce ourselves. So during that conversation, by far, the biggest thing that comes up is the reimbursements, the PBMs, for the most part, that are to blame for everything. That's the biggest challenge. And that, that has grown exponentially over the last five years. Part of that is anger. Part of that is maybe depression a little bit because they're working so hard. They're not able to spend as much time with their family as they'd like. And they're just having to work harder to earn the same amount of money that they might have the year before. Frustrations that by far the number one word or adjective I would use with pharmacist emotion right now. Here's one that I think really sucks is there's a lot of owners that because of the low reimbursement, especially when it's disguised as a DIR fee, that if you had a business that was just going down, I don't know, if you're cutting lawns or something like that, and all of a sudden you only have 50% of your business, at least that frees up some hours to do something else, whether think of a new business or spend time with your family or whatever. Pharmacies, though, can think they're doing better with more prescriptions and doing better with more customers, and sometimes it's just quite the opposite. And that's frustrating, of course. Yeah, I walked into a pharmacy last week and the owners have cut away three or four of the bigger plans in town because on average, they were losing money. They looked at it over a quarter and their average reimbursement was negative for spending all the time, the supplies, labor. But because of that, now they're only filling 250 scripts a week and even though they're probably at the same profitability they were with the lower volume and everything else, it's just, I don't know. It used to be that even if you looked at the plan, you said, we're going to keep it. It's really low on this plan over every prescription averaged out. But because of 
a certain reason we're going to keep it because it might draw in the family or it might draw in a neighboring business, whatever. There was reasons where you were trying to play games in your head to, to justify it. But after getting burned so many times, you truly just look at it. And even if it is a big player, it's just not worth it. And it's difficult to find that balance, right? At what point in time do you just cut it off? And because when you lose patients coming in for scripts, depending on how big your front end is, you're going to lose front end business as well. Things like that. You did because you thought the front end was there still, or you want to be known as being all service and things like that. But eventually it can never catch up. Sean, the average buyer that's going into a pharmacy, do they seem to have quite a different plan? Years ago, you would just buy a pharmacy and you'd switch hands on keys and that might be the only change you made, for better or worse. However, now, most of your buyers, it seems like they're going to have to make bigger changes than they did in the past than just changing the key. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing people coming in and maybe doing the status quo, which is fine. If your numbers are there, if you can do the status quo, you're good. Are you seeing a difference in buyers and their expectations of how much they're going to have to change or not? Yeah. So we're seeing more non-operator buyers than we used to see before. In other words, we're finding buyers that have multiple stores and they're buying a store not to work it themselves, but to add into their portfolio stores to help reduce their cost of goods sold, help with some of the insurance reimbursement. And when they do that, they've got their own business model that they want to put into it. Let's say there's not much delivery. They're going to come in and they're going to do a ton of delivery because they've figured it out. They're going to bring in the things that they found out works well for them. And that's why they're continually buying because they found a business model that works. Do you ever sell to somebody that is, let's say, a conglomerate that they buy, but then they've bought in another state or another business climate? Have you seen much of that when these people come in that they're maybe flabbergasted? How come it didn't work this time when we did this last time? We typically do not see that. I haven't seen it anyway. And I think the reason is because some of these buyers are more educated and they do their homework and research before they buy. So they know what states are regulatory friendly and not regulatory friendly. They know states where Medicaid has better reimbursement or doesn't have better reimbursement. Also telepharmacy regulations, what states are easier to put in a telepharmacy versus what states don't have telepharmacy as part of their regs or have more restrictions. So a lot of the buyers that we see in these groups, they've already done their homework, their research, and they know where they want to go. What's the rule on ownership? I seem to think Michigan, 25% of the pharmacy has to be owned by a pharmacist. Does that sound right? And does that differ from state to state? It differs state to state. It does not surprise me. That's the way that Michigan is. California, I know 51% of the ownership has to be by a pharmacist. And this is new in California. 
You cannot be married to somebody that's a physician. Really? Yeah. I, I'm dealing with somebody now. They currently own a pharmacy and they actually want to move the pharmacy somewhere else. But to do that, you basically have to go through a new pharmacy application. It just takes you down a different tangent. But because he's married to a physician, they're not going to prove the change of address because they don't allow you to be married to a physician. That's how tough it is. It's funny for me, that's California, because I'm across the country. I don't know what the hell goes on in California. Just accept that it's more on the liberal side and they've helped in getting same-sex marriages and all that kind of stuff. No comment on that. I'm just saying that they don't do pharmacist and physician. It's just funny for me. It's interesting with that law, because I think, I ain't no attorney, but I think that there's some laws about you don't have to turn your husband or your wife in. You don't have to testify against them and things like that. So I guess that would get pretty hairy maybe if you had a doctor and a physician married to each other. Yeah, I don't know. To me, it's over the top. I think it's the state of Texas. You could be a physician and own a pharmacy. I don't think they restrict it. So it's all over the board, all over the United States. I haven't found anything that's consistent among the states. It all depends on what the state drew up as part of their regulations. You probably have some of these groups that might want to stay in state lines because of rules and because of licenses and things like that. Do you find that's a natural barrier for some people or do they not care too much about that? No, they actually do. So we'll get a lot of referrals from buyers, from a attorneys. And the attorneys have already, they're typically pharmacy attorneys, pretty educated on the different regulations within state. And they'll give these buyers a suggestion of what states to go into. And there'll be a definite list of states not to go into. Just because it, it's tougher with the regulatory, especially when it comes to compounding, right? Some states are really hard. Some states are pushing for the USP 800. Some really aren't going to hold the pharmacies accountable for that. It all depends. How long have you been doing this now, Sean? Eight and a half years. Has it been nine? It's either eight or nine years, so, somewhere in there, but a bit full-time. How is your mental state? It seems that you deal with some people that this is a big happy thing. I guess most buyers are relatively happy or else they wouldn't be doing it. Some of the sellers maybe have had it. Does any of that run off of you? There's so much angst in the industry. Do you feel that or are you removed enough to just say, I'm helping, I'm doing my best kind of thing? If in situations where we do sell to a chain, me personally, I don't like doing that. I don't like taking an independent out, but we've exhausted all of the means of trying to find an independent buyer or there just wasn't enough cash flow or profitability to interest anybody. So you look at it as a positive that at least that option was there for these owners because not every pharmacy is sellable. I'll tell you that right now. If you've got a lower volume pharmacy, especially in a rural area that somebody may not want to move to and there's not enough money and the state has an approved telepharmacy, 
it could be a real beast to try and find a buyer for that. And I'm going to go to Georgia. I had a pharmacy in Georgia that had been in the same location for 60 years. One of the doctors moved out of town just because the town really wasn't growing. Well, so they were only doing maybe 600 scripts a week. He was pretty close to cash flow neutral, but we couldn't find anybody to buy his pharmacy. And there wasn't another pharmacy within 15 miles, 20 miles of them. So it was either shut the pharmacy down or just continue to operate at a net neutral. And he didn't want to be there anymore. Whereas if the state had approved telepharmacy, this would be an ideal situation to keep medications going to the community to where they didn't have to travel 15, 20 miles to get to another pharmacy. So in a situation like that, and people say, well, you know, you can sell your files. How valuable is that file when it seems that a chain might be savvy enough to have their eyes on that, knowing that maybe they don't have an easy out and then can go lower on things? Or do some not even want to buy that. They figure they're just going to get the files anyways. It's unfortunately been the latter recently. So the chains have really been tightening up on what opportunities they look at. And they try and stay away from low volume opportunities for a couple of reasons. First of all, it really doesn't make a huge improvement to the store if it's a low volume store. And then they factor into the amount of work they have to go through with operations, with acquisitions, with inventories, with finance. It's just not worth it to them. And if they do, they'll really lowball it because they say, listen, the only way it works for us is to pay you this amount of money because we've got a lot of other expenses into this. The data conversion, they got to figure that, go into two-point InfoWorks or whatever it is. And right now, some of the chains are just not aggressive at all buying. It's just the new direction from their leadership. They want to spend their monies other ways. What's the rule of thumb? I know it's complicated and you're writing a whole damn book on this, but what's the rule <laughs> of thumb? How bad does a pharmacy have to be that they're not really on the market. Maybe they can sell assets, but there's no value in the money-making process of it. As far as script count, I would say once you're at 300 scripts a week, then it gets challenging for the chains. And from a from an independent buyer perspective, I doubt you're doing any positive cash flow. I doubt there's a way to you know, pay a pharmacist full salary and rent and everything else, just fill in less than 300 a week. So from an independent buyer perspective too, that's really tough. Somebody might be buying a job, but that might be about it. Yeah. Now there, there are some positives to that. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, what do you suggest? Do you think it's better starting your own pharmacy or do you think it's better buying one that's already up, but doesn't do a lot of volume. It always depends, right? It depends on the situation. But if there was opportunity in that area, 
I think it's far better to start off with somebody else's pharmacy because you don't have to pay for a remodel or putting in fixtures, computers, equipment. And you already have a base of patients to start from. You don't have to start from scratch. And you start on day one. If you're building out your entire pharmacy, it's going to take you a minimum of six months to build out a pharmacy, get licensed, get third-party contracts in place before you can even start operating. So you're out money to begin with, and you can't even start to try and collect on that for a minimum of six months. And how do you find out if there's an opportunity in the area? Well, talk to your wholesaler rep. Who are you going to use? They typically have information on the density of prescriptions in a certain area, and then you can look to see how much competition there are, and that they can assist you in making that decision. Is this going to be a potential for you to increase script volume or not? The thing that I always keep in mind, and I guess I'd give this advice to anybody who asked, but there's a lot of businesses that they start up and they maybe forget that everybody is probably being served already. They might not like it, but they're not going without, in general, they're not going without their prescriptions because they don't have a source. They're probably getting them somewhere. They might be driving further. They might be doing mail order. They might be doing this or that. But it's not just good enough to come in and say, here's our shingle, look at us, because there's probably not a hole there. It might not be the best fit, but there's probably not a hole. Yeah, but you know, again, it depends on the amount of options a patient has in that area. Maybe there's only Maybe there's only two other pharmacies and they're super busy and they can't provide customer service. Some of these patients are probably dying to leave. And actually, I'm just a few miles away from uh, the location that I was going to open a pharmacy and worked with a pharmacy manager I was going to hire and gave him the plans. And he opened an independent next to two busy chains where there wasn't anybody else. And he's just, he's close to 3000 a week in just a few years. So he's killing it. A couple of friends of mine, they were both working at this one pharmacy in town. They didn't really like how the owner sold it. He had every right to do it, but maybe sold it beneath them or didn't even offer it or something like that. So these guys moved next door in a building. And within a day or two, they've got these three by five foot portraits of both of them. And they plaster him right on the window with an arrow like we're in here. Sean, there's one business that I think I would hate. That would be the restaurant business because I hate, for example, expired medicine. I get a year to sell something and they get an hour or a day. As you're driving around, what business do you say, that'd be kind of a cool business, like a cool market to be in? And also then, which one do you drive around and say, thank God I'm not part of that industry. That sounds like a terrible way to spend my day. So I'm going to preface this. I don't do drugs, never have, never will. But go and buy dispensaries. I'd wish I'd got into that because where I go, there are lines out the doors in a lot of these places. It's a cash business for the most part. 
And it's just from a business perspective, it would be, in my opinion, very lucrative to be in that. As far as businesses that I would stay out of, that I see, I'm trying to think, you know, I think these little trinket shops, the ones that don't have a strong business plan. My friend owns a tool and die shop with hundreds of thousands of dollars of machines and things like that. And you think of the pharmacy with all the overhead and the computers and all that kind of stuff, inventory. And he says, I never feel sorry though for these well, shops that go in these cute town shopping districts because what did they do? They went in there, they bought some clothes racks, they have a pad register thing, and they maybe threw up a hand-painted sign. But I kind of look at those and I wonder that too. Do they have a plan or was it a hobby that one of the spouses was itching to do and the other spouse, just to get them to shut up, said, go and open up your damn business if you want to. You wonder if that's why they opened it up. I do anyway. There was an article today in oh, Daily Mail or something like that, and it was talking about how the marijuana market is, they didn't use the word tanking, but they said going down. And I look at Michigan, there's some towns here because it's legal now, state legal. There's some streets now I go down. It must be a countywide thing because they'll be like, 10 of these shops, all different brands, all the way down, like 10 of them. Like you used to see with gas stations being four on a corner, or even pharmacies back in the day. And you just wonder how they're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't see them that consolidated in my travels, but maybe they're getting that consolidated because there's so much money in it. I don't know. I don't know anybody who owns one. Sean, we got to get into that book of yours. First of all, Give us a why for that. Is it marketing so they can say, here's the author? Or is it something you always wanted to do? Is it for us thick-skulled pharmacists that aren't learning enough how to operate this buy-sell thing? I think the number one thing is education, just educating pharmacy owners so when they are getting close to retirement or making the decision to sell, they're better informed on what things they should consider and how they go about the process. Part of it's marketing, obviously the services that we have helping owners through this process, but it, it really identifies the different steps you have to go through, how you go through those, the time frame you need to go through. And it really talks about how difficult the process can be because it can be crazy difficult. You could run into an obstacle that obviously you have no, you can't see it, right? You got blinders on, you can't see it ahead. You've never sold a pharmacy before. So you've never planned to that, but how do you react to it? A lot of these owners, it's a challenge for them to react to it. If they don't have somebody knowledgeable, use your resources. If you've got an accountant, make sure that your books, your profit loss statements are cleaned up and some of the unnecessary expenses are taken out in advance. Maybe talk to an attorney looking at different contracts. If you're not comfortable with the language of a contract, do not sign it until you are comfortable with it. There's other professionals out there that you can talk to to assist. Just get some help because the majority of owners, when you sell a pharmacy, it's the only time you'll ever sell a pharmacy. 
So why would you, why would you gamble everything that you've done over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of pharmacy and just think that you're going to be able to sell it and optimize your purchase price and it's not going to be stressful because you're going to figure it out. It's a challenge. There's a reason that we're out there and helping owners because it's a difficult process. Signing leases and doing this stuff, and these are five-year commitments and selling a pharmacy, that's a lifetime commitment or longer than five years. And you don't get a bunch of do-overs. No, I mean, and you may learn through the process, right? Like you do anything in life, you learn from your mistakes, but you don't want to make that mistake and think, oh, I should have done that when that was your only chance. Out of the percent of pharmacies that sell, what percent do you think this is people on their own versus using outside services? It's a tricky question because maybe everybody uses their accountant or a attorney or things like that. But let's say services of a consultant, what percent do you think in the market do that or not? If I were to take a guess, I would say that 60 to 70% use a consultant of some sort to help them. And there's maybe 25, 30%, 35% that don't. But I don't know because I, you don't know everybody who doesn't use a consultant to help them through the process. After years and years, this was with an account. He finally went to a more of a pharmacy-focused accounting service because I was trying to teach our account about pharmacy accounting. And that's like quantum theory. It's like you get things that aren't supposed to be like that. And they can't hardly believe that it's happening until you show them. And it's nice now, instead of me explaining to somebody, it's nice to have an accountant with whatever number of pharmacies where they can tell me what the average pharmacist is doing and so on. And I imagine there are some people that might get an attorney or something like that, but unless you see it all the time, it would be almost impossible to pick up on all the nuances of it. And even step back a step, you've got to first find the buyers too to be able to to sell. And when you own a pharmacy, you don't want everybody to know your pharmacy's for sale. Because if you do, you may start losing your doctors. You might start losing your patients. Worst of all, you might start losing your employees. So how do you find it? You need to find a third party and in between that can confidentially bring in some qualified buyers to look at the pharmacy so that other people don't find out. Last time we talked, I think somebody put it in the Daily Herald or something like that, that they were selling or and then the, and the guy Aren't pulled they, out. Yeah. Or it's on Facebook. Yeah. It's, hey, does anybody know of a yeah. broker to sell my pharmacy? It's, oh, no, yeah, exactly. Sean, have you come across times where somebody's going to sell and it makes sense to do something else with their building and things like that. The pharmacy's not needed because you've got chains, whatever, that are servicing people, not as well they're servicing them. Do you ever have someone that the value of their building and the value of this and that is higher than even being a pharmacy? 
Yeah, a- absolutely. And back to the dispensary thing, we had no. Oh yeah, right. In the Midwest, that recently sold their prescription business because they had, they were in the process of starting a dispensary, and they brought that in. We've had people that have removed the pharmacy business. Actually, this is more common out there. You you get rid of the pharmacy business and you focus on your DME business because you got margins of 40, 50% in that. As long as you've got enough volume to pay for the rent and the employees, it makes sense. And even maybe splitting off part of the pharmacy, if you've got a hybrid like a, a retail and compounding pharmacy, sell the retail and just focus on compounding. That's a really big trend right now that owners are getting out of the retail and either converting to LTC where you get better margins, no DIR fees, or compounding. We see a lot of that right now. And compounding is obviously, especially the cash compounds, there can be some great money made in there. And there's a lot of capital investment companies, private equity, they're looking to buy that up. We've got a lot of contacts where they're saying, find us these pharmacies. We want to buy it. I'm dumbing this down for myself. Is there ever a time when you see a pharmacy being split where it physically is split? Like they build some walls to make the pharmacy just the pharmacy, and then they leave this open and sell it to someone and so on. Have you ever seen someone with 5,000 square feet and then they sold something and now you've got 1,500 and 3,500, something like that? We'll see that in, in higher rent areas. There's a pharmacy in Southern California. Their rent's like $20,000. So they made a deal with their landlord to come in and put a wall in the middle that's basically going to cut their rent, not quite in half, but it's going to cut it down to where it's more manageable. And then the landlord's just going to rent somebody else. We see a lot of people that go and get a different pharmacy license for LTC. So they've got one for retail, one for LTC. And then they get better reimbursements by having a space dedicated to the LTC type of prescription. I forget who it was. It wasn't a guest. It was somebody who was actually in my pharmacy. And I asked them what they would do in my situation because I own our building and it's kind of a cool building. It's like a peninsula. We have windows on three sides of our building because we have three streets that are around our pharmacy. Let's say I've got, I don't know, five years left there. They say, why don't you sell the building and get that out of it and then have a lease with this person that owns it. And I'm like, the last thing I want to do is deal with another layer when it's my own place. There's enough negative things that come with a business not wanting to bring another layer into that It just didn't seem worth it to me unless there's some great reason to do it. There might be. There's some real estate companies out there that they'll, obviously, it'll bring a premium to a piece of property if there's a steady stream of rent coming into it. And real estate investors love pharmacies because they're so durable, they're longer acting. So it's possible that you could get more for your building, selling it, and renting back from them. And then when you go to sell your business, 
then whoever buys it is going to be renting from this real estate company and they might be able to do a lease option to purchase at some other point, but you could probably increase the amount of money you get for the building if you sell it to somebody like that before you sell. Kind of give it a runway and get the money flowing in and they might say, it's a decent enough deal now and in five years we'll worry about it more, but at least we've got kind of our traction going a little bit there. Yeah. Sean, now that you've put your thoughts together in the book, what are the points that you think are uh, the most important points to get across in what you've written and what you're going to bring out in the book? I guess it starts from the very beginning. The very beginning is when do you decide to sell or when do you start preparing to sell? And it's my opinion that you should know what your pharmacy's worth before you even decide it's time to sell. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Do you prepare to sell your pharmacy first? Do you get a value first? I think you need to get at least a ballpark idea or a general idea of how to value a pharmacy based on your positioning or your profitability. But once you know that, then you got to start cleaning up your books. You need a clean profit loss statement. In other words, You need to take out and remove any non-critical businesses that aren't directly related to the business so that we don't have to do that when it comes time to sell. Because the more adjustments you make on a profit and loss statement when it comes time to normalize the net profit, the more challenging a buyer might be or the less confident they might be on the financials. Also, if you're putting any other income in there that's not related to the business, you need to keep that out as well, such as if you own other rental properties that you're making money on, separate everything. This should be for your pharmacy only. And that takes a couple years. That, that takes a couple years to, to really get that clean so that your P&Ls and your tax returns, they match. Because if there's a variance in the two, any buyer is going to be cautious on why is your P&L say this and why is your tax return say that. So just make sure you're cleaning up your financials in advance to make the buyer more confident in the business that they're buying. When you say two years, it probably doesn't physically take that much time. But one of the things that comes to my mind is when you're buying or when you're selling, maybe someone's going to ask to go back a year or two just to make sure you haven't made a bunch of changes in the last month to make it look good. Is that one of the reasons? It takes time to have those adjustments show up in your P&L. So if, for instance, at the end of 2023, you got to start working in January, February for the end of 2023. The other reason is the banks that are financing these buyers are typically going to want three years of financials. They're going to want three years of P&Ls, your payroll summaries. The other things you got to look at is store conditions. It takes time to clean up your store. You want, you want to put your best foot forward. So you want somebody to walk into your pharmacy and be impressed and not see cobs up on the fascia of the roof or dirt or broken windows or lights burn out, whatever it is, you need time to clean that up. But most importantly, from a financial perspective, to get the best that you can on the value when you sell it, you need to look at the expenses 
and try to reduce those in advance. Your cost of goods sold is your biggest thing you're purchasing. Are you at the national average of what the gross margin percentage is? Are you below that? If so, you may want to look for a new wholesaler or find out why you're lower. Obviously, if you're specialty, it's going to be lower. But if you're traditional retail, you want to find out why you're lower than the national average. Labor and inventory are your next biggest uh, expenses. Are you staffing too many people? Has your business dropped? Have you not cut the labor? Are your employees making, you know, more hourly than they should be because they've been with you for a long time? Are you still giving health benefits? It's really tough with the margins today to continue to pay for health insurance, to continue to pay for profit sharing and other benefits that we've been afforded to offer to employees in the past. With the increased scrutiny on the the margin, it's, it's tough to do. I think an owner, a lot of times they're going to be with the store or not be with the store, not based on 10,000 bucks this way or that way. It's either in their blood and they want it or they want to get out. But a buyer coming in, that stuff matters. Thousand bucks here or there, or ten thousand here or there. They don't have that long term decision from the heart and all that stuff. They're looking at those numbers and to clean those up, it might make you look better than the next pharmacy. If you cut payroll by, let's say, twenty thousand, which may not be significant, but keep in mind that the multiple value in a pharmacy is three times the value of the net. So if you put 20000 back to your profitability, it's worth three times more value to a buyer. So that adds 60000 worth of value. So you've got to look at it in that terms. Anything you can save on the expenses is going to be worth three times as much when somebody comes to purchase your pharmacy. The average selling multiple is typically a three-time multiple of your normalized or adjusted net profit. You know, what your true net profit is after you've adjusted all your expenses. So anything you can take out of expenses and add to the profit is going to increase the value by three times of what that expense is. I talked about potential earlier. And one thing I was thinking of is, I wonder if there's anything that you should do or should not do to your business if you're thinking of selling. And here's my point. You mentioned medical equipment. Let's say you have medical equipment. And let's say the buyer's interested in medical equipment. If you have it, you might attract a buyer who says, okay, they've got medical equipment. That's good. If you don't have it, maybe that buyer will say, it's good they don't have it because we're going to come in the area And we're eager to put in medical equipment, something that this pharmacy never did, and we're going to kill it with it. It's hard to know what type of independent buyer you're going to get interested in your store, right? It's hard for you to predict what interest they're going to have. What is helpful to know is when when you get a valuation on your pharmacy, and a lot of people will give you the valuation complimentary just to build a relationship with you. So once you look at that, there should be an indication 
of what the value to your, of your pharmacy is going to be if you sell to an independent versus if you were to sell just the files and inventory to a chain. And you might get an indication of who, what type of buyer is going to be able to give you the highest purchase price for it. So let's say you're cash flow negative or cash flow neutral. You don't have you don't have a real profitable pharmacy, but there's a chain sitting next door. That's probably going to be the logical person to buy it. So there are things that you need to consider to prepare your store, knowing that they're probably going to be the most likely purchaser. In other words, you don't want to have a lot of controls. I would say nothing over 15% of your total prescriptions should be controls. It should be under 15%. You don't want to have a lot of cash prescriptions because they don't think they're going to retain cash prescriptions. So if you're bypassing copays and just changing it in the system to what the copay would be and doing it as cash or cash discount, that's going to hurt you when you come time to sell because they're going to they're going to discount that prescription. Special packaging, if you do blister packs, multi-dose packs, they're probably not going to continue that and they're going to discount those prescriptions. There was a time there where the chains were doing delivery, but now they're pulling back again because it's so expensive and time-consuming. They're discounting stores that have a high percentage of delivery as well. So these are the, some of the things you want to consider in advance if a chain is a high probability to sell to. What's the one on the control one? They don't want to, because of all the problems? The wholesaler. They have the same thresholds that an independent does. Bringing in these additional files, it might take them over their threshold. And all of a sudden, they can't service the controls. And those patients leave and they take their regular scripts with them as well. I got you. And they want to take care of their patients instead of bringing this new batch in. And all of a sudden, they can't serve anybody. Right. Exactly. There's a lot of consideration to think about before selling, right? Sean. Thanks for joining us again. We're 18 months out from when we talked last time. A lot has changed. A lot has stayed the same. And it's always good to get our knowledge on that from somebody who's living it day in and day out in the field and doing a lot of it. So thanks for joining us again. And we'll have to get another update from you another year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's crazy that it went this quickly. A lot to talk about. We're both very passionate about what we do. So I guess it's easy to just talk and talk, but I appreciate you having me on the show and love having discussions with you. All right, Sean, we'll keep in touch. We'll put some links into the show notes and I look forward to talking again soon. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.